Thank you so much for coming this evening. I know we're competing with a lot of drinks receptions, uh, so I'm glad that you have chosen to spend your evening with us, and we do have drinks. Uh, so if you haven't already, please do help yourself. Um, I'm delighted to be chairing the panel uh, on the constitutional consequences of electoral reform. Um, so. We know that the voting system for the UK Parliament has been a long-standing subject of constitutional debate um, and proponents of proportional representation um, argue that it would better reflect people's preferences and moving away from the UK's majoritarian system would fundamentally change the way that the UK politics operates. Um, and so what we wanted to do today is think a little bit about the knock-on implications of changing the voting system for the way government works, for the way Parliament works, for the implications what the implications might be for the union. Um, so to discuss all that with me, I'm joined by an excellent panel. I'm going to have to start with an apology. Unfortunately, Florence Ashelomi cannot join us today. Um, but instead, we have the excellent Dr. Julia Buckley, um, who's agreed to step in. Julia is the Labour leader in Shropshire Council and the prospective parliamentary candidate for Shrewsbury. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Anne Action, we were discussing. Uh, currently, Anne Action, Lisa, and Shrewsbury, just Shrewsbury. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, to my right, uh, we have uh, Mick Anthony, who's a member of the Senate um, and Council General for Wales and the Minister for the Constitution in the Welsh Government. Uh, we have Darren Hughes, Chief Executive of the Electoral Reform Society and also a former member of the New Zealand Parliament. And then on my left, we have my colleague Alex Thomas, who's a programme director at the Institute for Government and also a former civil servant working in the Cabinet Office during the coalition government. So, yes, keen here to reflect on the panel's really diverse experience of different electoral systems, how that's worked and what might happen if we introduce that to the UK Parliament. Um, when we talk about electoral reform, we're talking about a lot of different things. When we talk about proportional representation, there's a lot of different options for what that might look like. Like. So I'm going to start with my colleague Alex. Um, what options are we looking at in the UK and how, that, how might that affect the different outcomes and therefore the constitutional consequences of electoral reform? Thanks, Jess, and uh, thank you also for giving me a slight warning of that question because I approach uh, uh, trying to define different electoral systems and options for electoral reform with some trepidation given the expertise on the rest of the panel and in this room and the fact I'm the only one of us who has a glass of wine in front of him. So... <laughs> So forgive me uh, if and when I get um, anything uh, anything wrong. But um, I mean, just to just to start, I mean, this is a uh, a slight bugbear in that, um, as just said, I was the uh, civil servant who led the teams in the cabinet office during the coalition period, doing various um, constitutional and electoral policies, and I did the legislation for the AV referendum. And so the moment people talk about the horrified looks there, I do. Uh, and the, the moment people talk about um, the moment people allied um, electoral reform with um, proportionate electoral systems, I sort of have the same uh, look that uh, uh, my, my friend at the front there uh, uh, had, which is that, of course, AV is in some respects potentially less proportional than um, uh, than, than other systems. But I would see it um, uh, as there are, you know, there are um, you know, three broad different buckets of uh, electoral reform. One is the um, uh, the alternative vote uh, system where uh, it, it, you, you 
rank uh, uh, rank your choices in order of preference, but is fundamentally a majoritarian system, and so is a tweak to first past the post rather than um, rather than a fundamental um, reform. Uh, the second is the kind of uh, Jenkins report, post Jenkins report of um, uh, AV or first past the post, you know, plus then a proportional element to um, to top up uh, uh, to top up the seats, um, and then the third would be a um, single transferable vote um, uh, system that would be uh, you know closer to um, the uh, full proportionality. Um, uh, uh, then you know lots of different kind of variables around that list systems, open list, closed list, um, you know pure proportional representation. But I'm getting the sense from the room that you don't need me to explain proportional <laughs> electoral <laughs> systems any more than I've already done. Um, uh, so, but to the second, you know, and in this context, more interesting part of um, uh, Jesse's question for me. I, so I operated as a civil servant both before and after, but but during the coalition um, government, and you know, one consequence of a more proportional system, rather than kind of getting too into the weeds of what the system actually would mean, is that it makes coalitions more likely, and it makes potentially minority governments more likely. And I think you know, I'd be interested in uh, over the course of the evening how the theme comes out um, of the difference between. Between a coalition government and um, a minority government, um, or a confidence and supply government, because I, I think um, to get to the heart of what um, electoral reform might mean for how we do government in the UK, you need to really think about it in quite a distinct series of buckets. Certainly, my experience of a coalition government, and I think you could you know, make quite a strong theoretical case of this as well, is that it can be strong and stable, to coin a phrase, um, uh, it can actually entrench a majority more firmly than a simple majoritarian government, because once you've done the deal inside the government, it's then pretty unbreakable. There's also a hell of a lot of um, political capital invested in that coalition government. So that has certain consequences for the um, the mechanics of how you do collective agreement and how information is shared and how departmental portfolios are allocated. But in the end, you operate as in a majoritarian government. I think then the other bucket, and then I'll um, shut up, is um, uh, around the kind of minority government um, or, uh, um, uh, or or a confidence and supply government. With confidence and supply, I was also involved in the discussions in 2017 after Theresa May failed to win her majority then. The critical point there was access to information. What information did the, Dep the, the DUP have uh, access to inside government that, um, uh, uh, that would allow them to, you know, lend their support on certain issues to the to the government in a minority government it's all about parliamentary handling and parliamentary skills the whips office the civil servants understanding exactly what's going on and framing policies in that particular context but this is my sort of open, opening pitch yes. great thanks alex and um, i wanted to ask an opening question to um the rest of the panel um about the opportunities and potential challenges of electoral reform because i think one of the things that's really important to think about when thinking about electoral reform is what other knock-on changes might be needed, what adjustments might might need to happen as well. So if I can start with, with you, Mick, um, to that opening question. Well, the, the, in, within Wales, uh, we are already transforming the system. We've had for 24 years since the establishment of uh, devolution, National Assembly as it was, uh, we have had a mixture of first-past-the-post and proportional representation. I can say throughout that period, um, we have never had a Labour majority, but for 24 years we've had a Labour government. Uh, and it has meant we've been able to work in a cooperation agreement, which we have at the moment, on those areas. An example of that cooperation agreement, of course, is you don't have to go every year to try and win a budget. And whereas we wanted for a long time to introduce free school meals, the cooperation agreement, where we're a common interest, 
we've been able to do it because we know we don't we have the certainty of the budget from year to year but we are uh, reforming our senate uh, we are increasing it to deal with the additional responsibilities to, from 60 to 96, uh, and we are eliminating first-past-the-post completely. We will be introducing a closed-list system. We will be introducing legislation to introduce statutory gender balance within it uh, as well. We're using the DeHaunt system. It means that every vote will count because at the moment if you're in a strong labor area your set your second regional list vote doesn't really matter you know you can you can win two-thirds of the votes and, it, and you're still not going to get a labor representative so that is something's really important that every vote will count um we've also introduced for local government they have the right now the statutory right to introduce stv if they choose to do it i'm hoping that some councils will do we'll have to wait and see but then one other thing that we've triggered onto this as well is in terms of electoral reform. The Electoral Commission tell us there are 403,000 people in Wales, a population of 3.2 million, who are not on the electoral register. What are you going to do about it? Uh, we're introducing a bill, I've just introduced it, to introduce automatic registration, uh, and uh, as well as having votes at 16 plus. So that combination of those means, effectively, for the, for the devolved elections, which are local government and Senate uh, elections, watch parliamentary elections, uh, we will not only have a, a, a different register, but we will effectively have uh, removed from a big chunk of our system the first past the post system and be pro proceeding on the proportional representation. Excellent, thank you. And as the Welsh Government is planning to change the electoral system, it might change the public sort of way that they relate to their representatives rather than having constituency members, there'll be multi-member constituencies. What thinking are you doing about how to sort of explain that to the public to adjust to what is a slightly different situation? It, it is a change because we'll be pairing constituencies, so we will have 16 paired constituencies and six elected members per constituency. With our gender quotas bill, that will obviously introduce a statutory balance there. But there'll be a number of challenges that we're going to have. First challenge, of course, is to explain the system to people. Now, people are already used to part of it because we already have the regional list system. So it's basically extending that and eliminating the first past the post. So that will be the challenge. And it is a really important one that people understand the way the system works how it's going to operate and so on. So that's important. But I think we can, uh, I think we can actually uh, achieve that. Uh, but that's the challenge. We, of course, engage with the Electoral Commission and various bodies as to how we're actually going to promote that. But the reality is, for the Welsh parliamentary elections for 2026, we'll not only have an automatic uh, uh, registration system, but a larger, that will pose interesting challenges as well. When compared with the uh, Westminster elections, we actually find we've got a register that is much, much bigger. And if it were to apply to Westminster, we'd probably be entitled to more members of parliament. That's a slightly, <laughs> slightly different uh, uh, challenge that's there. Um, but, uh, you know, it is about engagement. But people are used to the system already. All the names of the people will be on the ballot paper, which hasn't been the case uh, in the past. Uh, and every vote will count. And it does mean that, I mean, there will be representation of political parties in a far broader way than we've actually had in the past. They will be a far more representative, and I would hope a far more diverse um, uh, uh, next uh, parliament after 2026. Fantastic, thank you. Um, 
Darren, we have a very interesting case study in the form of New Zealand um, when thinking about what, what electoral reform might mean for the UK Parliament in that New Zealand obviously changed from first past the post to a mixed member proportional system. From that, what are your reflections on the sort of opportunities and challenges for the UK? Were there any teething problems that needed to be sort of sorted out in New Zealand? Did it take time to adjust? What, what might the UK need to think about in that context? Thanks, Jess, and thanks to the uh, Institute for Government for putting on uh, this event uh, on a very particular question about uh, electoral reform. It's one of many uh, uh, rallies and uh, fringe events being held across the conference on electoral reform or proportional representation, and they've all got one thing in common. They're very well attended, uh, and there's excellent questions at the end, so I'll try not to talk for too long. Um, but it's no surprise, really, in a, in a party where... 83% of the members two years ago voted for PR. Last year, a significant movement by the trade unions for PR. This year, the National Policy Forum are doing its work. Next year, TBC dot, 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 works our job in this room to, to see where that goes. But I think the question here is what, what would happen once it was introduced? And what I find interesting about that is there's a lot of energy going into changing the system, and that's incredibly important. Um, but what's more important is what it does to politics, to parliament, to government, to citizens after the this change is made. Uh, because yes, it will make Wikipedia entries about general elections look tidier and fairer, and that's a good thing. Uh, but we actually want to see day-to-day -day politics being done differently. And if I think about the, the New Zealand example, I mean, I think the opportunity uh, is for a more uh, honest advertisement for democracy. You can tell people that all their votes count, but it's worth voting. Uh, we can take away the uh, the, the necessity that millions of people feel to tactically vote. So they vote for the person they dislike less than the person next to them. And it's, sort of, it's maybe an okay way to choose your cereal. I'm not sure it's a good way for your representative if your uh, Tesco's run out of the, your favourite variety. Um, and so I think that's an opportunity there, but also to bring in a wider range of people into Parliament. So we don't call our Parliament in New Zealand the House of Commons, it's called the House of Representatives. And under PR, that's been a true statement. Uh, whereas before, before it wasn't. So I think those opportunities exist for, for a better style of politics. Just, just the opportunity. We still be human beings representing human beings, right? We can't lose, uh, lose sight of that. But the opportunity for a bit of politics, for a wider variety of people to come in, to be more honest with citizens about, about what it means. The, the challenges are that uh, I think that there'll be a lot of people who will be uh, before the vote, the first vote under PR, trying to say in the lead up to it, oh, this is just so confusing. The system we had before was so simple. Well, you try going explaining first past the post to countries with PR and saying it's a simple system. That, okay, so you can come second but win and et cetera, et cetera. Um, generally speaking, most people think the voting system they use is simple and the country next door has a bizarre system. It tends to be the way that these things are, are, are viewed. So I think, you know, now after 30 years, New Zealanders know how the um, MMP, the PR system, works, but there was a scare campaign about that, and I've got no doubt that would uh, that would happen here. Then the other the other challenge would be immediately afterwards, where a lot of politics would still be staffed by people who were experts at using, understanding, strategizing, maybe even in some cases manipulating uh, the previous system, and so we'll long to return uh, to the previous one. And in the first term in New Zealand, it was very disruptive because there were people who wanted it to fail, people who were struggling quite genuinely to make it work, and so you need to give it some time to beat beat it in, and then after a while, uh, a number of people will look back and say uh, that, that that it's been a bit an improvement. My final point seeing that this is the Labour Party conference, I would say that uh, the New Zealand Labour Party went from losing a lot of elections uh, to getting a fair shot at forming a lot of governments. Uh, and uh, on Saturday, as it happens, 
because the law requires it, not because of this fringe of them, there'll be a general election in New Zealand, uh, which is just, I asked my friends if they could arrange that for this week to sort of uh, make the case better. But the, um, and it'll be the 10th one. And so far, five of them have resulted in a Labour-led government. Uh, four of them have resulted in a uh, centre-right-led government. So I think this argument that this is all a stitch-up for one side has been proven by the test of time. So over time, you build support beyond the initial parties that, that support it. And it's, it's led to uh, you know, a situation where Labour is in government uh, far more than it was before, but just at a fair amount as opposed to what we see here. And the majority of the years that we've had PR, we've been led by women prime ministers, which is maybe why the country's in such a good shape. <laughs> Thanks, Aaron, and I'll turn to uh, uh, a woman who would like to enter Parliament. Um, uh, Julia, uh, you're a prospective parliamentary candidate, but you've also got experience in local government and also in a kind of an academic sense in uh, the EU as well. What do you think are the opportunities and challenges of electoral reform? Um, so I worked out in the European Parliament in Brussels for five years as a policy advisor for the Party of European Socialists. And what is really striking, if you were to compare how the European Parliament is run to our Parliament, is not just obviously that it is PR, but it's full of young representatives, female representatives, people from all different ethnic backgrounds, um, and you have that absolute breadth of representation that you described. And that's obviously because the central parties have so much more control over the party lists that they can ensure that that representation flows through. So that's the opportunity. But in terms of the challenge from that, obviously you can imagine that existing actors in the space, and I think you touched on it, are resistant to rolling over and allowing somebody else uh, to come in and take their slot. But also the uh, issue with regional lists, we had a regional list for the European Parliament, and that meant that you would have 10 MEPs for a place such as the West Midlands, uh, for example, and so people felt unclear as to who was the representative for their area. They felt as though that link were, uh, felt more distant. Actually, what happened in reality, so I spent a couple of years working for an MEP in the Northwest. What actually happens, and it's the same that happens in my local council where you have multi-member wards, which most of you will have, is that you carve the geography up. So when we had the West Midlands 10 MEPs, we had one that represented Birmingham and one that covered Wolverhampton and one that lived in Coventry and they knew the area and they were embedded in the area and when inquiries came in, they were divided. So it's really not rocket science, is it? You know, there is a way to retain that link and it's really important because political parties at the moment drive the process. So members need to feel engaged, that this is worthwhile, that this is going to work. Candidates need to feel that it's fair and that they have a chance. And those are the actors that can stop this. You know, we've heard, you know, 60% of CLPs want this, 83% of the public, and yet a small minority holding the reins of power can decide whether or not this goes ahead. So we have to be really clear that we're not just doing this because some parties might do better or worse. It's a basic rule in politics, which is that you accept the rules of the game, whether you win or lose, but first we've got to make those rules fair. And what struck me, you know, we've talked a lot in previous sessions about how not all votes are equal. You know, if you're going to quote Animal Farm, you'd say all votes are equal, but some are more equal than others, aren't they? If you live in a marginal seat, your vote is worth so much more when you're offered and showered lots of goodies. And in Shropshire Council, where I'm the leader of the Labour group, the Tories have a majority of only five, and people keep resigning, so they're feeling very fragile. 
They've just agreed to spend £230 million on a four-mile stretch of road that will help three conservative wards. We're in deficit of £51 million. We probably can't afford it, but those votes are worth more than all the 71 other seats. So... You know, we need to get to the point where every vote is equal because what becomes clear is when we're talking about voting systems, we're not just talking about the day that we vote. It has that effect, doesn't it, for the four or five years in between the votes where decisions and policies and funding will flow into the area where those few votes make the most difference. Just imagine a different world where every vote counts and every area counts and then decisions are made on whole other premises. And for the five years that I worked in Brussels, 80% of my time in meetings was spent discussing policy. What would make the most difference? What would make the most impact? What would achieve the largest consensus? How could we work closely with not just other parties, but other geographies so that we could find that common ground? I can tell you I work some time in national parliament. I've been elected councillor for six years. Policy is the thing we spend least time talking about. We talk about personalities, winning, we talk about media coverage, and we talk about the next election. So wouldn't it be great if we could just grow up and start talking about policy? <laughs> great, thank you. I mean, I think one of the potential consequences of changing the voting system would be more coalition governments, as, as we've said. It's less likely that um, a government would uh, command a, a large majority like we get under first-past-the-post. Um, and that's fundamentally something that in the UK we're not really used to. We've, we've had one um, and uh, in recent memory. Uh, but one of the things that we looked at in the research we did as the Institute for Government was what knock-on reforms might be necessary to make sure that the UK system can accommodate uh, a different electoral reality and a different parliamentary configuration. And Alex, you were one of the co-authors of, of those reports. Um, in terms of sort of how governments have formed and how they operate, you touched on a few ideas initially, but what subsequent reforms did you think would be needed to, to adjust to a different voting system? Yeah, and I think um, it's a good question, and, you know, who knows, I suppose, is the first answer, which I undermined immediately the report that we did, which I shouldn't do, sorry, Jess, but um, but I do think we can draw out certain things, because, from as I said earlier, not the fact of changing to a new voting system, electoral system, but the uh, likely consequences of the governments that would, would emerge, and, well, actually, more accurately, the House of Commons or the House of Representatives that, that would emerge. I think the, the, the research that we did picked up on a few things. You can sort of track it through the life of a government, if you like. So the first um, bucket of changes that we might need to think about if uh, there was a change to the electoral system are around how the government is selected in the first place. Awful lot of power resides but also does not reside in uh, the monarch, in the crown, the king. Um, at the moment, that isn't generally put under too much pressure because, albeit not in the last seven or eight years, first past the post has tended to produce uh, relatively clear outcomes. If we were in a world of more uncertainty, more coalition negotiation, more time needed to develop a programme for government, which, by the way, regardless of the outcomes of government, I think more focus on programmes for government would be a good thing. But if, if that needed more time to develop, you might need to look at some of those 
mechanisms for actually creating. You, know, you don't want headlines about Gordon Brown squatting in Downing Street. You don't. Um, uh, you don't want um, uh, a hugely contentious debate about the role of the monarch in um, selecting or deciding the government. So there's a there's a bucket of things around around that. Then, as I touched on earlier, but I won't major because I can go on for too long. That there's a, a set of things about uh, how government processes work. Certainly Liberal Democrats who I talked to after the coalition government, uh, I can see one of them in the uh, audience, um, uh, uh, were um, uh, frustrated about the uh, extreme internal focus on the Prime Minister or on Number 10. And when you had a Deputy Prime Minister who, you know, in some senses, okay, smaller party, but was kind of a co-equal leader of that government, the system internally is not geared up to support the Deputy Prime Minister from private offices, uh, special advisors, through to um, departmental access to information and so on. Um, you would think that cabinet committees were ideally suited to um, hash things out. And actually, in many ways in the coalition government, they were. It was a very sort of <coughs> operative government in process terms. Um, uh, uh, but there were lots of things that you would look back on, you know, even down to David Cameron had the, the big black number 10 door and, uh, and, and Nick Clegg didn't. So, you know, there were a whole set of things inside the process of government that you might look to, uh, including access to information. And then very briefly in Parliament, um, uh, the I don't think in and of itself um, different electoral outcomes would uh, change Parliament, but it would be probably a trigger to reflect on whether some of the things that we assume about Parliament, the government's control of the agenda, um, the uh, power and influence of uh, backbenchers, the way that select committees um, work, the allocation, you know, particularly the allocation of time, whether that might be a, an opportunity to think differently in Parliament about how, um, how all of that um, worked. I would just kind of finally add, I do think, um, uh, quick points, but uh, I do think culture matters more than systems and structures in this. So, of course, I completely buy the arguments that a different electoral system would change the incentives very radically around how you get elected and then how you behave when you are elected. But in the end, it's, it is uncertain how that would translate onto the British government culture. Um, uh, so that would be you know, something to, you know, to, to, uh, to, that, that is an unknown and would be a kind of dynamic unknown, if I can put it that way. And then uh, finally, though we might come to this more in a bit, I, I know Darren was being, um, uh, you know, being mischievous and entertaining as he always is about the, um, the sort of electoral outcomes, but I think the worst argument is that it might lead to different electoral outcomes. The best argument uh, are the ones that um, uh, all of us have uh, talked about in, in, in different ways about representation and about effectiveness of government uh, and about how it changes the incentives inside the, the system rather than entrenching a, a particular majority or minority uh, of particular political views. Thanks, Alex. Um, so the way that the UK Parliament operates at the moment is that we have a government and we have an official opposition and then we have kind of all of the other parties. Um, Darren, I'm interested in the experience of New Zealand when they moved to change electoral system and it was also accompanied by uh, some parliamentary reform as well to kind of reflect a sort of more multi-party culture. Are there things that you think we would need to change about the UK Parliament if the electoral system were to change? Yeah, there are. I mean, one of the things that was about a year before the change, a lot of time was spent working out how a um, a parliament that had been dominated by just two parties, occasionally with one or two MPs from a different party, even when they got twenty percent of the vote, there'd only be one or two MPs from another party. So you had, you know, um, a very dominant executive. That executive dominated the government <laughs> caucus. 
the governing caucus then dominated the uh, the legislature, and so really you had power concentrated in the hands of just a small number of ministers who then carried the cabinet, and, and, and you'd see the domino right right the way through. So what what was thought about was in a parliament which would have many more parties, maybe half a dozen parties, and and uh, no one party with an overall majority. How would you set up systems and structures that would that would give some life to that? And uh, I think starting off on the right foot is is the right way in that regard. So uh, what what they decided to do was to have a business committee of parliament which all parties would be represented on, chaired by the Speaker uh, of the House. Uh, and they would work on the basis of achieving either unanimity or near unanimity. It's a little bit of wiggle room there about exactly what that means. But, but, but putting in place from the from early doors the convention and the culture that actually for matters to do with Parliament, Parliament should decide it itself rather than being told by the executive uh, what it should be, even though obviously 100% of the executive also sits in that single chamber, uh, the, the lower house. But I think by starting off by that uh, process of saying to the new parties and to smaller parties, you've got just as much say in how we organise the mechanics of the functioning of parliament, the business agenda, uh, etc. It actually it set the right tone for making a distinction in a smaller country between the executive and the legislature. And that, that really has stood the, the test of time because it builds up um, honesty and trust between parties. And then as the characters change, as you know, there's a turnover in, in political personnel, they inherit those jobs from a predecessor who will say to them, the most important thing is to behave responsibly at this committee. So that then flowed through to much more powerful select committees, uh, flowed through to something that's quite standard in the UK, but hadn't been hitherto of opposition chairs of select committees. And uh, often opposition chairs are are actually even better because they want to have a reputation for diligently um, putting through legislation uh, in, in a, in a um, fair and coherent way, providing enough scrutiny. So again, you're changing culture, you're getting people to do new jobs, sorry, existing jobs in a new way, uh, and that, that really helped build up the, the power of parliament uh, at the same time that there was power sharing in the executive. So I think starting out is very important because you're trying to work out an institutional response to a fairer voting system where people have had their actual power translated into seats in the House. And so I think those some of those uh, some of those institutional structures were important in the success of keeping PR. Great, thank you. And I mean, Nick, uh, the Welsh Government's been doing a lot of thinking about Senate reform in terms of scrutiny and committees. Um, are there any lessons that you think from, from your research and reflection that could be learned for Westminster? Well, I mean, the starting point is that uh, first past the post just doesn't doesn't work. I think it also has a, another consequence. You have to see electoral reform also in people participating in elections. It's no good having a, an electoral system uh, where most people don't can't actually be bothered to vote because they don't think it makes any difference. I think the first past the post system, what it actually does, it forces political parties to almost totally concentrate on that 30, 35% yeah. in the centre. And I think it effectively then excludes the broader political debate and so on, because you, because you can get elected, you can win a government on 35%, and that clearly can't be right. It might have been fine after the you know, Second World War when you only really had two parties, but it isn't really now. I think you have to add on to it as well the issue of democratic health. You know, and I, I keep saying in Wales, look, when you know forty percent of people don't vote in parliamentary elections, fifty percent don't vote in Senate elections, and sixty percent don't vote in council elections, we have a real democratic crisis that's there. And one of the reasons is, I think people probably quite rightly 
uh, you know, they're right when they say my vote doesn't really matter, you know, because they're only talking about this cent of it here because that's the way first past the post works. Uh, and basically whatever I say or how I vote doesn't make any difference. Mm -hmm. So the issue of democratic health and the motivation of people to participate has got to be also about restoring the trust. So I think you have to take electoral reform also within that, because if it doesn't result in more people participating, you know, it might be a, a bit more representative, but you still have a major democratic crisis. But what I think it does do, it gives you the opportunity to say to people that your vote really does count, that does, does count, and it puts an initiative and onus on the political parties to actually go out and get them. And of course, with automatic registration, we don't have to worry about them being on the register, you know, so you can actually persuade them to, to turn up and vote as well. So I think that combination of things go together. And I, I, I push very much within Wales and every sort of contribution I make, that amongst all the wellbeing factors as well, we need to look at democratic wellbeing because that is really what underpins the stability, I think, of our, of our society. Thanks, Vic. And one of the arguments that the First Minister um, of Wales has made in favour of electoral reform is that it would uh, potentially help save the union because the, the forces of, of electoral reform can mean that uh, different uh, voting trends in different parts of the UK can be exaggerated. I'd be interested in your thoughts on how you think changing the voting system would, for Westminster might change representation of the union, but perhaps, perhaps specifically Wales. Well, look, we, we have a, a constitutional structure as well that is actually quite uh, divisive and doesn't really work for a whole variety of reasons, civil and so on, and we know uh, mm. the consequence of that. So we do need substantial constitutional reform. Gordon Brown's report, incidentally, is a really important contribution to that in setting out principles of subsidiarity and what interdependency means. But what we also have is a society now that is far more diverse, that has a far stronger regional identity than we've ever had before. We don't have some of those big post-war, you know, the, the, the mining industry, the uh, foundry industry, all these things that were created a sort of hegemony. Uh, and people want their, they want to know that in their community, representatives are representing them locally. They have the ability to do that. So that sort of over-centralized, uh, top-down policy-making process, I think is something that really irritates a lot of people in communities. And we actually have to really represent it. We did that with Welsh Labour. Uh, Welsh Labour, when we had the clear red water, what it meant was, yes, we are part of the broader Labour agenda, but we will stand up where there are specific Welsh interests if we disagree with something. And I think we have to have that diversity in politics. Otherwise, people lose confidence. I think that was a factor possibly within Scotland. Um, we also have to have a debate, actually, about what the purpose of the union is. You know, what is it for? What is its function? And so on. So we need to have that debate. And that's part of the picture as well. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, Julia, uh, councils having no overall control, or certainly not a large majority, is, is much more common than it is in Westminster. Do you think there are lessons that Westminster could learn from local government in how to function? Yeah, I think so. I mean, even the way that council chambers are organised, rather like <coughs> PR chambers, they're a hemisphere. You don't have this 
um, bipartisan situation where you're either for or against. It's sort of a, a zero-sum game. So if you win, I lose, and vice versa. So in the House of Commons, you've got that that zero-sum, which leads to quite emotional party politics, where you can only win or lose. Mm. So what happens then is that policies become very short-term, and the alternates of governance, I know we've had 13 years of the same government, but let's just imagine for a moment we might get a fresh government sometime soon. What we've seen in the past is that they can often just dismantle the work of the previous government. Now, sometimes that is just visceral, emotional, uh, driven from their ideology. You know, for us, for Labour, you know, we were distraught when they closed down Shore Start, New Schools for the Future. And sometimes that's about establishing your party's position as the victor, that you're therefore going to dismantle the work of your predecessor. So imagine if the sort of culture shift we heard about over there, which is the idea that instead of aiming for opposition, you're aiming for unanimity, because... On each issue, and in the European Parliament, it was different depending on the topic. You've got to form a coalition around that policy, so you've got to find that consensus. So instead of aiming to beat somebody, you're aiming to get as many people on your side as possible to find that unanimous position. What that creates is long-term visionary policies because that isn't going to be undone by your opponents because they're now your allies. And so actually it has a much longer lasting impact both on the type of policy. Yes, that means more compromise and compromise is something we see in local councils. Sometimes it means you don't get much done. But because we're not trying to win or lose, we're trying to get something over the line and that could make such a difference um, on a council level. Um, uh, just to talk about the wider reforms that are necessary, I'm sure you're aware that the other elements of the Brown Commission, which were pretty much welcomed uh, across the Labour Party, are reducing the voter age down to 16 and abolishing the House of Lords to replace it with uh, a representative House. So the idea that we have this democratic renewal across the piece, so we really are trying to break open these institutions, make them feel accessible uh, so that more people can engage. And so that's called the Take Back Control Bill, which is quite ironic. I think it's a bit of a, a remix on the Brexit bill, because actually for voters, they will be taking back control of our institutions because their votes will matter and they will have a chance to get in the room. I had on my list when you said opportunities and challenges, I had on my list low turnout. Now, I put that down there because for European elections, we did have low voter turnout, but I can't be sure that's linked to the system. I suspect it's to the fact that it was a, a supplementary level and that was something that I, I'd like to hear the other's views on because we already have fairly low turnout, so I would say we have pretty much not much to lose. Great, thank you. Um, I wanted to return to this question of culture. Um, and one of the things that, that several uh, members of the panel have raised is that there's a hope that electoral reform would promote kind of consensus and compromise in politics. But I think we are at a point at the moment in UK politics where uh, there's a lot of division, particularly between the two main political parties and kind of transitioning to a sort of more cultural, um, consensual politics might be a bit of a challenge. Um, Darren, I'd be keen on your reflections on, on that <laughs> challenge and whether there are things that can be done to either help us overcome it or whether you think we also need to be a little bit realistic about what structural changes might be able to deliver. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people in this room who spend a lot of time persuading people about the the, uh, the cause of proportional representation. And I think one thing that uh, can often happen when you're talking to somebody new about it is that they want to know 
what would it mean for them at the last election and the next election coming? And actually, we're trying to make a much more principled point about saying what should the rules be for fairness for the next 100 elections? And in that case, if you're, you know, you'll have years where your party has great good policies, wind in the sails, great candidates. You'll have years where that might not necessarily be true. Uh, and uh, in the market of, uh, of voters will make some decisions about that. But what it will, what it will mean is that every parliament will be fairly formed of the views of the public uh, at, at that time. And I think... That, that's where the opportunity for, for culture uh, change really comes through. And the two areas I think where that's the most profound is one, just to pick up on the point about policy stability, which I think is very important because for all this talk about uh, strong and stable, the, the irony will be if there is a change of government at the next election, the only the only term that will have gone full term with the same Prime Minister will have been the coalition term. Uh, in other words, two parties working together uh, to try and uh, bring together a policy agenda. So actually this idea that things can't be done, that has been seen even, even within this term of, of government. Um, but also you're looking for policy stability. So it's no good getting elected on a big landslide, ambitious agenda. You put it all in as fast as you can. Don't listen to many people. Use your majority. Uh, and then finally, your, your political, uh, the tide goes out, you're thrown out, and all of that, the, all those things you've done are overthrown. And, and, and you've gone from one extreme to another with a new set of uh, situation of, of, of a different public policy agenda. And when I think about what the Helen Clark Labour government did in New, in New Zealand about a quarter of a century ago, I'm going to make a note while we've been talking here, things on workers' rights, like the Employment Relations Act, which promoted a collective bargaining. Uh, Jacinda added to that with uh, fair pay agreements, introducing paid parental leave, civil rights like the Civil Unions Act, establishing a New Zealand-based uh, Supreme Court, not the Judicial Committee of the House of Lords. I've been against that for a long time. So that's uh, um, uh, uh, working for families tax credits, can you say that workplace pension policy, these are all things that the opposition of the time said were terrible. One of those policies I mentioned was called communism by stealth, just to show that uh, political rhetoric doesn't disappear under a PR system. You'll still get people debating things robustly. But all of those things I've mentioned are still policy today. They haven't all been thrown out because that particular government left office a long time ago now, uh, partly because, this is my bias showing, there were good ideas that stood the test of time, but also because we weren't a majority government. We had to work with other parties. And as time went on, those parties then worked with a different government. And so when ministers in the, in the government that took over came to try and consider ripping these things up, the other parties would say, no, we were part of developing that. And that's the new political consensus. I'd also say that um, although they might oppose, you know, oppositions might oppose things at the time, in order to win government, they often have to adapt uh, those policy settings. Now, in the hurly-burly of politics, you argue about whether it should be 31% or 32%, and if you're a devil, if you want 32, and you're a saint, if you want 31. But in the great sweep of history, these things are, are more important about the policy setting. So I think that's uh, that's a really important point. And the second uh, cultural point, as, as a specific example, is on diversity. You know, in a lot of first-past-the-post parliaments, diversity ends up being the job of one party. That's wrong. Um, and uh, in New Zealand now, it's a, it's a gender-balanced um, parliament, cabinets, gender balance, and one of the most significant things is that the indigenous population, which is about 15%, are actually overrepresented in, in the House of Representatives. This is phenomenal after 150 years of gross, gross underrepresentation and, and having their political power and say locked into one party that wasn't in government very often because of first past the post. So now all parties take this seriously about offering to the country a, a broad slate of candidates to the country because it's everyone's job to deliver diversity because every vote counts. And I think those are two practical examples of the culture change that proportional representation can bring.
Fantastic. Thanks, Darren. Um, I'm now going to go to questions from the floor. Um, so if you could just hold, put your hand up and uh, we've got a microphone coming around. Okay, I'm going to take them in groups of three. So if we can go, um, lady at the front here, um, the gentleman in the, the blue jacket and uh, the person at the back with the tie. I don't know if that was descriptive <laughs> enough. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm going to pick up on a couple of points, really, from Darren and Junior, I think. Um, I'm concerned about the short-term stability mm -hmm. after coming out of First Past the Post. And that is because I live in an area where, um, in our local elections this year, I heard an awful lot of, well, I wish I could vote for someone other than the usual two. Um, and we have a history of being the only council with a UKIP council, and we're the ones that managed to fight off Nigel Farage, but only by voting for a Tory. So my concern is that, um, you know, they all want reform UK or Green, but they're going to have to vote Tory or Labour because they're the ones that are going to win. So I'm concerned that there would be a lot more radical mm -hmm. um, extremism potentially coming in, particularly in the short term, because we have um, a country where political knowledge is appallingly low. Um, and the other bit, really, that comes into that concern is something that Julian mentioned, is if we present the old dinosaurs at the top of the list, then they're going to go, I don't want the old dinosaurs, let's vote for someone we haven't seen before. But our UKIP council failed because nobody knew what the hell they were doing. Mm -hmm. um, and that was part of it. So it's about the stability in, in the early stages, and so that we don't have the old dinosaurs holding on because I'm going to be at the top of the list. So that's... My question. Thank Great. you. Thank you. Thanks, Greg Ford from East Hampshire. Um, the debate seems to be framed by a retreat of democracy around the world, and there's also this um, increase in AI-driven populist uh, politics, dirty tricks, and so on. We've got one shot at uh, electoral reform with hopefully a new Labour government. What would be the advice of the panel to defend against those, and if I can attach to that, are there any lessons to be learned from Germany, which we've long admired for their coalition politics, but it's all going wrong now with the mm. march of the AFD. Thank you. Great, thank you. Yes, Aaron, I wanted to uh, ask the panel to reflect a little bit more on uh, a, a question which was already a, a bit implied, which is what what can be done, what needs to be done to prevent the sort of division and extremism apart from PR? So, you know, we've seen around the whole world a, a tide towards um, more extremist politics, towards greater division. Uh, and that has affected countries that have got PR and countries that don't have PR. Uh, so what else is, is needed to try and counter that. I'm simply thinking about the media, for example, but they may have other ideas as well. Great, thank you. Three great questions, all on kind of a similar theme around uh, kind of the risk of extremism, particularly in, in the electoral context, um, in the international context, um, and uh, in uh, the wider kind of culture and, and media as well. So I suggest we kind of take them as a three. Uh, Julia, I'll start with you. 
I'm afraid we're not going to agree here because Nigel Farage is a fantastic example. He's the most influential politician of this century. He's been incredibly successful in achieving all of his aims and has never been elected to the House of Commons. And I would say, because he wasn't elected to the House of Commons, the millions of people who voted for him felt incredibly frustrated. They became aggressive. It led to a lot of unsettlement in the country. It led to an inability to debate what he did and didn't stand for. And probably, although I can't be sure, led to the Brexit result. So, frankly, I wish that we had a PR and that Nigel Farage could win a seat, could go to Parliament and could show what he stands for so that there could be a mature dialogue where we can win the argument in a mature way. And when I worked in the European Parliament, he was an MEP. So he had to go into the European Parliament. And every time he stood up, everybody groaned. <laughs> because what he said didn't make much sense. It wasn't very logical. It wasn't very thorough. He got his numbers wrong. Because actually, Actually, as a country compared to others, we are terrible at debating. We don't know how to have a mature and sophisticated debate, to listen to somebody, not interrupt them, to respect that you don't agree with them, and, and put your point forward, learn something from them, and try to find a halfway point. And because we're terrible at it, we therefore think it's a dangerous idea. Do you not remember we had the same reservations about the IRA? When they moved from being um, a freedom-fighting organisation into the ballot box, everybody said they can't be in Parliament. But they wanted to be in Parliament. They wanted to come to Parliament to use their voice to have a democratic discussion. And that is progress. And so actually, if in a PR system you have some views which we might consider to be extreme or fringe, I want them in the room so we can look them in the eye, we can have the debate. We should have confidence in ourselves that we are good enough at what we do, that we can win the argument and prove to people that we have a better offer than them. And if we're not confident enough that our offer is better than them, we are suppressing democracy. So I'm, I'm more of a Democrat than a socialist. I'm a social Democrat. I'd rather that we have voter turnout in a PR system when they don't vote for me I think that is fairer than suppressing the vote through first past the post and watching a huge movement with lots of support never getting in the House of Parliament because the impact on our country was horrific. So I know it's not easy to imagine, but we have to take confidence that if we do it correctly, it could be manageable. Let's have them in the room. Let's learn what they've got to say. And we can actually grow some tolerance for each other. And that might flow through our society. But if we do, that's the yeah, I know. which is what happened in the Brexit vote. Yeah. You know, it's hard to accept. You might be in the minority, isn't it? It's hard to accept that maybe everybody doesn't think the same as you. So it's either our job to persuade them or it's our job to accept that we didn't win. You know, I'm brilliant at losing elections. <laughs> now my task is to start getting good at winning them by being better. That's how I want to win, by being the best candidate and offering the best option and not to be afraid of the challenge. Let's not be frightened of them. Okay. Thanks. Hey, Nick, I know you want to come yeah, in. I know just, speak, just speaking as one of those dinosaurs now, which I find quite <laughs> nice um, we, we had in our last Senate for five years, uh, five UKIP 
members. Uh, they were horrific. We had the wonderful Neil Hamilton, who didn't even live in Wales, spent most of his time arguing that he should he pays his expenses for travelling from Wiltshire in, into Wales, you know. But uh, we had them there. They were the most appalling group on there. But I have to say, you know, they got they got on the system then because our threshold under the of the system we had was five percent. The new system we introduced would actually make that twelve percent. But quite frankly, if people get twelve percent. Uh, they're entitled to have that representation. Yeah. And you do have to have it to expose it. The net effect was of that five years is the next elections, they all got kicked off. Right. And we don't have them anymore. But it would be far more dangerous if to try and have a system that you manipulate to exclude certain people who have a democratic mandate. Yeah. That I think is far more dangerous. And I agree very much yeah. with the point you make there. <laughs> Can I just reassure you about dinosaurs? So in the last, the final European election, I was on the uh, Euro list for the West Midlands, and I was the third person on the list, which they told me was winnable, but turns out it wasn't. Um, and the reason is because the central party have control, they make sure that equalities and diversity run through the list. So the lists, certainly most of the parties I saw in the European Parliament go male, female, male, female. So, 48? <laughs> But I'm saying that they wouldn't be able to have all men at the top. They'd have to at least have that alternate. And that's another advantage of the list, that you've got, you know, they can't choose their place. It's shared. Right. I'm just going to go to uh, Darren and uh, Alex uh, quickly, and then uh, we might be able to squeeze in a few more questions. Sure. And I agree with what, what's been uh, said on that point. And you started off by mentioning the biggest problem, which was the tactical voting uh, scenario, which is the hallmark of first past the post. I, I do think that... Um, yeah, some, sometimes sunlight's the best disinfectant on, on these things. And I think if you, PR provides a way of having a, like a, like a pressure gauge release in the system. So, so you, you recognize that there's a feeling in the community and it gets some representation, but not dominant representation. You know, we're using the example of UKIP because it's more recent, but I, I don't want to sort of personalize it, but they got four million votes in one election and they got one seat. Now that anger doesn't disappear because, and some of the most jubilant people about that were, were um, in the north of England and they were Labour people. Yeah. Well, next year, the following year, there's a referendum where every vote counted on a topic called membership of the European Union, and those same voters came back with baseball bats to say, we're trying to make a point here. So I think PR provides a, a bit of a pressure release and then the whole system, which is a really kind of useful thing, and uh, I, I, we shouldn't we shouldn't sort of miss that point. I think there's a big onus on parties to have internal democracy about the dinosaur point, and um, you know, Nick's talked about some of the gender initiatives and that will come through with the reforms in the in the Senate. But but there's a you've got to make it in the interests of a party to say if we're contesting every vote everywhere, let's put up a range of candidates that look like the people we're trying to serve. And I think that then answers itself, actually. And only PR uh, can deliver uh, that particular point. On, on, the, uh, on the AI and what's happening in some countries right now and the division and extremism, I mean, um, sort of captain, op captain optimism here about these things. And I think, you know, political histories go through stages where something new occurs and it brings out some behaviours that aren't great. So, you know, when the newspaper was invented, it put enormous power in the hands of barons. 
Um, but over time, people learn how to adjust and assess, why was this person saying this? Who's paying them to do it? How does it all work? Right now, we've got this new thing, AI. We've got this new thing, social media. There's a terrible coarseness. It's making people withdraw. My hope has to be that as time goes on, we kind of mold ourselves into adjusting how to deal with these things. But what, what, what we will not be able to deal with it if we keep having a majoritarian winner takes all, denigrate your opponent, kind of keep things as bland as possible style. If we have more of a grassroots PR uh, representation in Parliament, then I think we can overcome these things. But but I suppose the warning within that is things don't become perfect. It's just you, you've got to, you've got more tools to deal with societal problems as they come along. We're dealing with some pretty big problems right now, but we'd be better armed. If Every vote counted, and we had more, more of a representative nature style in our democracy, both in the people that serve us and the culture that governs us. Yeah. I'll, be, I'll be very quick, just because uh, so we can get it all rounded. But um, uh, on, the, on the first couple of questions, um, and taking a cue really from from Julia in the sort of trying to reflect and think and engage constructively. I don't know. I don't know uh, what the right, um, uh, what the consequences of uh, electoral reform would, would, would be and how that relates to extremism and, and, and so on. It, 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 you know, I, I find, you know, I find different arguments convincing, but I do think in either scenario, it's really important that we don't ignore the other safeguards in our system around ethical standards, around the rule of law, around, because I think the, 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 the fear of a demagogue taking over with, 50% plus of the uh, of, of the vote is is strong but equally the kind of the, the balance between airing and suppressing is you know there's a there's a sort of reality to democratic uh, politics there which you know and I, I don't know the answer to it but I do know that the uh, you know the good chap theory is uh, has broken down and we need a stronger system of um, uh, ethical safeguards around that but the point I really wanted to answer and I will be quick was the sort of the apart from uh, electoral reform question because I was very struck by Darren talking about you know good ideas that stand at the test of time, better policy making. We can do that anyway. Um, I accept that there are different incentives that apply, but again, it's an IFG theme, but better policy making, more involving those who are affected by the consequences of policy. Good ideas. We have a Supreme Court and not an uh, uh, appellate committee of the House of Lords as well, and that stood the test of time. We have same-sex marriage, and that stood the test of time. With political skill, leadership, statescraft, these things can happen um, uh, in the system at the moment, and so to try and sort of inject a, uh, a you know a, 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 a positive view of good policy making, mm. regardless of the electoral system under which you're operating, uh, I shall uh, uh, finish on that point. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we've got time for. Um, okay, I'm going to do two more questions. If we make them quick, I'm going to go two sides of the aisle to <laughs> to make it easy. Great, thank you. Uh, I feel that a lot of the argument for PR hinges on the ability about this cultural shift that you're talking about, particularly at the end there, Darren, um, about moving away from competition towards consensus building, making alliances out of opponents. Um, my fear is that you're potentially cherry-picking examples like with New Zealand about where this has been a success story. But what about what have you got to say about how Belgium and the Netherlands always struggle to form government. Spain is really struggling and has been for many months, and this is a repeated occurrence. So I'm worried that it's the cultural shift is by no means guaranteed and might not even be likely. Um, so how can you account for those breakdowns? Great, thank you. Yeah, I'm interested in the physical manifestation of our democracy. Mm -hmm. uh, 
House of Commons, our Palace of Westminster. And it's already been mentioned by Julia that you have different setups in local government in terms of a horseshoe shape. You've got the Senate, lovely building. You've got the Scottish Parliament, lovely building. Really, can you actually have a modern form of government, a democratic, properly democratic government with PR, if you've still got a rubbishy old Victorian building that's falling down and will cost about 20 billion to put right? Great questions, thank you. Um, I'm going to go in reverse order. Uh, we've got five minutes, so we can keep answers brief. Alex, um, I'm happy to pass, uh, Jess, if that yeah. makes Excellent. it easy. Easy, Darren. So on their point about the physical manifestation, I mean, I think people have different views on that because I, I'm not sure that the shape of the chamber has necessarily made. Uh, aspects of Scottish politics of unifying wonderful place at various points. That, but that's because the contest of ideas is quite strong there. You know, the, 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 the views are very deeply held and people have got different views about the future of their country. And so um, my, my, my view on that is that it's worth trying to um, have different ways of laying, setting things out to try and encourage better behaviours. Um, but, but you can't you can't be surprised if it doesn't exactly work. But it's worth a try. And I think the old... The what the you described uh, with the two sword lengths apart, as though that's a necessary requirement from a health and safety perspective, it doesn't seem very 20, uh, 21st century. Um, and yeah, sure, Belgium, Netherlands, there are, there are other countries with uh, PR that do struggle uh, from time to time with it. So I think that's why the design is really important, starting it off. They used much different systems than the ones we'd be talking about here in the UK, which is why there is a parallel with, with New Zealand and with Ireland, STV in Ireland and uh, uh, MMP, AMS. Uh, in, in New Zealand, so I think that's about how you how you start start off and, and how the culture uh, develops there as well. But I think um, you're right to point out that there's no guarantee. You, you are requiring individuals to come forward who want to make it work uh, and uh, a political culture that, that that believes in it. So uh, you'd have to have, you know, have a bit of faith, but it's worth it because what, what we've got at the moment is clearly not working, and it's not worth sticking with. Great. Fantastic, Nick. Yeah, uh, cul culture can and does change, and I think Wales is an example of that. We have, in order to get our agenda through, we've had to come into a cooperation agreement with Plaid Cymru. There are people in the Labour Party who say, what on earth are you doing forming an agreement with the nationalists and so on? Well, we don't have an agreement on those things we disagree with, but those areas where we do agree, and that can spread over, in fact, to the Conservatives as well, uh, what is wrong with actually saying, well, if we all agree that this is something you should do, you can actually go ahead and do it and actually make sure it happens. Uh, and I, I think that not only makes sense, I think it is one of the reasons why, probably why most Labour has actually been really successful, because we didn't need to have a cooperation agreement. We could have carried on with 50% and probably forced to votes and we'd have probably got away with it. But what is very, very clear, people actually like the idea that politicians do try and work together in a common interest. It doesn't mean you don't have things you disagree with. We have some terrible rows uh, over various issues within that. But we have those common areas of things that we are doing collectively together. And, uh, you know, all I can say is, you know, you learn how to do that because you have to if you really want to represent people and form a government. But I have to say that the popular by population, by and large, actually really like it. Great, Julie, I'll give you the last word. Thank you. So I think the basic premise is that if, if we want to get involved in politics, we have to accept the rules of the game. So PR is not perfect, but PR is fair. 
So we're talking about moving from a dysfunctional, unfair system to a system that could be fair, where votes are more equal. Nobody's promising it will be perfect. Nobody's promising that sometimes people will disagree and things will go into a halt. Where you, the examples you quote in Belgium and Netherlands and France, when it did break down and they did have periods of no governance, that's reflecting the reality in their country. That's reflecting the views of the people, the representatives they chose who had opposing views and could not find a consensus. So politics isn't life, it's reflecting life, isn't it? Reflecting what's going on in those communities. But I would say we've got examples of that ourselves in the first past the post. I mean, surely you all remember all those votes over Brexit where they could not agree and we had to rewind the same votes again and again and again because they, we couldn't find a way forward that could uh, muster enough votes to get a majority on the biggest question in the last 20 years. And what did Boris Johnson do? He promoted Parliament. So closing down Parliament is the same as Parliament stopping working. But what happens, and I think you could maybe say it's a similar situation in Stormont in Northern Ireland, the, the stopping of Parliament and the sort of cease of governance in of itself acts as a deterrence because those citizens feel like they haven't got a voice, that the person they chose hasn't been able to reach an agreement, it's broken down, and now they've been left without a voice. You'd have all seen the family there who were trying to get the law passed about the bypass you know, for their son who's ill, and it can't go through Stormont because it's closed, because their politicians can't agree. And so you've got citizens lobbying their representatives saying, please, Will you find a way to agree so we can reopen Stormont, so we can get laws passed about uh, health that will save the lives of our children? So I think failures, imperfections are their own deterrents, and we see that across the piece. And um, finally, about the building, I thought the Scottish Parliament was a beautiful building. I went to visit and went with some friends of mine in Edinburgh, I thought it was fantastic. You know, democracy in our time, and it's symbolic, and isn't it great and modern? And my Scottish friends think it's an abomination. Yeah. It costs far too much money. From our perspective, the current building we have for the House of Parliament, the biggest campaign I remember from women like me were lobbying to remove the rifle range to put in a crash. So we've got to think about functionality. Does it matter what the building looks like or how old it is? Or does it really matter how it functions, whether it's accessible for disabled representatives, people with families? Let's talk about pragmatic things that will improve democracy. And let's stop worrying about what things look like and how much they cost. <laughs> Great, thank you. Uh, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. I just want to do a massive thank you to our partners in this event, the Electoral Reform Society. Um, thank you to all the panel, if you could all join me in giving them a round of applause. If you enjoyed this event, uh, please do check out our recent report uh, on electoral reform in the Constitution. It's part of our review of the UK Constitution that we've just concluded. And if you enjoyed this event, you can come back in just over 12 hours. We'll be doing uh, Can Labour Deliver Constitutional Reform? Uh, we've got an excellent panel, including Emma Sawa and, and Baroness Smith, and I'll be there too. So please do join me at 9am tomorrow morning. Thank you. Thank you.